0: As you have a seat, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for who you brought into this space tonight. I genuinely believe with all my heart that there's not a soul in this room that showed up tonight on accident, uh, that you have a purpose for us in this place with each other. I pray as we open your word, Lord, you'd make that known. I pray that you'd speak to each person tonight in a way that I can't get to. Holy Spirit, um, that you'd use the same words a couple hundred different ways tonight, Father. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for a beautiful day. Um, and I'm grateful to share this space with these guys tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, if you are just joining us and you haven't been around, we've been talking about the life of David. And preaching through the life of David is, is weird and, and difficult. And here's why. Is, there's a ton of it. There's a ton of scripture. And I just had to go through uh, and, and, and grab a dozen or so sermons out of different little pieces of his life because I wanted to hold those things up and say, what lessons could we learn from the life of David? And each one of them has been so good for me, you guys. It's been good. This one, the one that we're talking about tonight, we're going to talk on friendship. And, uh, and David, we, we get to learn some beautiful lessons about friendship and David's life. But this has been a convicting one for me to prepare. This has been a, a convicting talk for me to prepare. God's done some work in me prepping for tonight. And I'm excited, too, you guys, not just to, to lean into our theme tonight. Um, I'm excited for the rest of this school year. They, in no way, shape, or form are things letting off. Are we letting off the gas pedal at all and just, like, cruising into summer? Um, conversations about people getting ready to be baptized. I think we got baptisms coming in the next few weeks. We're laun- Yeah, We're launching trips, you guys. I mean, like, God is getting ready to do a bunch of stuff in people's lives, and it is so cool. We're going to... We'll have stuff for the seniors. If you guys are seniors in here, we'll have stuff for you before you're launching out because God's sending you into your own commissioned space. We believe with all our hearts that you're a missionary wherever you're going. And so whether you're staying around with us this summer for Summer Encounter, whether you're launching out and going back home or somewhere else, um, God's got work to do and, and we're in the midst of it. So if you feel like we're gonna coast into summer or you're gonna coast into summer, Sorry, it's not gonna be that way, okay? But I'm excited for summer to be here because it felt like summer today. So um, let me talk for a second about groomsmen or, or, you know, we're talking about a bridal party. You're either talking about bridesmaids or groomsmen. This has been a part of my reality for a really long time because in campus ministry, most people who, are, who do ministry, you guys, do a lot of weddings and funerals. That's the reality of it. I've worked in ministry for 24 years and I have never, I've never performed a funeral not one. been to many, but I've never officiated, like I've never been in that pastoral role. Um, I have literally done hundreds of weddings just because this is my people, right? And so um, or back in the early days when I did a lot of worship stuff, I, it was always music. I mean, I was just constantly doing music at weddings. And um, in, in my role now, it's more officiating. And I do less than I used to, but seriously, so, so many weddings. And so I've, I've seen a ton of groomsmen in my time. And basically, if you're thinking about a bridal party, whether you're talking about bridesmaids or whether you're talking about groomsmen, just imagine they're standing in their pretty little line up here, like on each side of me, right? Um, these are the friends you gather. I mean, when you decide you wanna get married, that's one of the questions, if you're having a ceremony, that's one of the questions you ask. Who have I gathered? Who are my people? You know, and so you 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 have to come up with this as a couple. How many people do you have standing there? Well, okay, five. It's like, well, how do I choose five friends? And some people, it's just family, you know, but usually it's who have been the most crucial relationships to me. So one of the questions I just want to put out there for you tonight on the front end, and this is going to, we're going to come back to this several times throughout, is who are you gathering? And what kind of a person are you? I mean, like if you're thinking about how you're a friend to others and the friends around you, who are you gathering around you? Who's standing up beside you and what role do they play? My experience with groomsmen is, and I think groomsmen are hilarious, you guys. I find them to be hilarious because nobody has a less important role in a wedding than a groomsman. Seriously, (laughs) nobody. They don't do anything, but they are so nervous, so nervous, okay? Here's what they seriously if if this is if we're in the church together they walk down sometimes they have to hold the arm of someone not always they walk down somebody has put a piece of tape on the floor where they're supposed to stand so they go to that spot they've been told to put their left hand over their right hand so they stand like this okay for usually about 20 to 27 minutes And then they walk back out again. And if you would see them before the wedding, sweating bullets, like, I don't know if I can do this, ready to faint, ready to throw up, it's like, you can walk and stand, and that's all we're asking of you, man. And so, like, I have a tradition, this isn't very kind, but, uh, if you know, oftentimes they'll rent tuxes that are black, and sometimes I'll like to find the groomsman who's like questioning himself the most in that, and, and, and I'll be like, is yours navy blue? Yours kind of looks navy blue, just because I want to put that idea in his head. So he's like looking at the rest of the groomsman being like, is this, is this navy blue? Is mine the same as yours? And he's like looking under the light at other, that just gives you a little window into who I am. But anyway, I would tell you that in my past experience in weddings, and it's a lot, that there are three types of groomsmen, like, like the, the entire group of groomsmen. Um, either they are what I'm gonna call oblivious, um, which means that they just have no idea what's going on. They're not really a help to the groom at all. Uh, they're, they're just sort of like, <laughs> I don't even know what they are. They don't know what they are. They showed up with their clothes and they're like, somebody tell me where the tape is that I'm supposed to stand on. And they're just oblivious as to what's going on. Um, some of the, the groomsmen that I have seen in my time have made me deeply sad. They're not oblivious. They're negative. They're there as a negative force in that groom's life. And I have heard them pull into different corners and be like, dude, we're going to get you so wasted tonight. Man, you won't even remember. Well, you know, you're going to have such a headache tomorrow morning. We got you a stripper. We're going to get you plastered. That's rare, but I've heard it. And my heart just sinks because this attitude that I hear in this group of men is so dishonoring to the family, to the bride, to what's getting ready to happen, to the marriage. And it's like, this is your people? This is your people. Again, that's, that's rarely been my experience, but I have seen it. And on the flip side, I've seen groomsmen that are incredible positive forces incredible positive forces where I see them loving the groom and the family and the bride, serving, how can I help? I'm here to be whatever I can. I walk into a room, usually it's my job, I'm the prayer guy as the pastor who's there, so it's like all the time people will approach at a a wedding reception. I'm sitting there, you know, eating a salad, and they're like, I'm sorry, Mr. Miller, would you be, I know that this is last minute, but would you be willing to pray in a microphone? It's like, yeah, I can. I can do that. <laughs> I have some experience with that. I'm okay with that. You didn't have to ask me to do that in advance, you know. Um But I'll walk into a room expecting that I'm going to need to lead that, and I'll already see a group of dudes gathered around this guy praying for him and lifting him up. And sometimes it's just an incredible positive force that I see. And so, again, I've seen these three different kinds. I've seen people who are dragging the groom down, people who show up completely oblivious and have no idea what's going on, and I've seen people who are loving and serving really well and lifting that groom up and making him great. I don't get to usually see the other side of that. You know, I don't get to see what the bridesmaids are doing, but I'm sure it's the same. I'm absolutely certain it's the same. So tonight, I want to ask this question. What does it mean to develop those kinds of friendships? Who are you inviting to stand up with you? Whether you get married or not, that's not the question. Who are you inviting in your world to stand up with you and to stand around you? And what kind of a person are you in the midst of that too? You guys, friendships matter. They matter a lot. You are not an island. I'm I'm a bit of an introvert. I like to pretend that I'm an island. I'm not an island, you guys. Not an island. I depend on you. You depend on me. We're in this together. Um, There's a study I read about in prep for this sermon. Not an encouraging title, right? Study reveals Gen Z is the lonely generation in America. You don't have to look too hard to find studies like this. Let me just read you a couple quotes. Almost half of Americans, quote, sometimes or always feel isolated from others and that their relationships are not meaningful. Half of Americans. 27%, one in four, rarely or never feel as though there are people that really understand and connect with them. And using the UCLA, I didn't even know this was a thing, using the UCLA Loneliness Scale, they found that this affects all generations. I was kind of shocked to see how deeply this affects every generation, but guess what? It affects Gen Z the most. Friendship matters. Even from a health perspective, take this quote in. Research has found that loneliness has the same impact on mortality, that's your death rate, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, making it even more dangerous than obesity. And you guys, all of the stuff that I read was pre-pandemic. This doesn't even take into account the loneliness factor that the pandemic has brought into the world, which has changed some things, yeah? Like, we won't know for a decade how to study the impact of what that has had on you and me. I don't just mean on future generations, I mean on you and me and how we think about loneliness and isolation. You guys, you were not designed to do life alone. You weren't. You needed. This isn't just a spiritual truth, it's a physical truth for you. Studies show that your, your, your uh, mortality rate increases if you try to do life on your own. So, let's look at David. Let me actually jump into my text tonight. And I'm going to jump backwards. The past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, David and Bathsheba, David and sin, David being confronted, David and forgiveness, all these different things that happened when he was king. But I want to jump back, uh, sorry, previously in his life before he was king again. Right? And so he is, uh, if you remember in this stage, before he was king, Saul was the king, and Saul was an evil king. And during that time, you remember David, the story of David and Goliath. David, as a young man, beats Goliath. They, David is anointed just before that. Samuel says that he will be a king of Israel, but he doesn't tell him when. As it turns out, this won't be for a very, very long time, but Samuel anoints David and says, you will be king of Israel. That doesn't sit well with the dude who is the king of Israel, who, by the way, happens to be losing his mind slowly. It's not a graceful exit for Saul. And so as David continues to grow and have these military victories and people start singing his praises, Saul is in his palace getting more and more irate and jealous. He's a madman. He's a madman and he wants David dead. Every time that David goes to war and people sing his praises, whew, Saul wants him dead more. Now, here's, here's the complicated part. David develops an unbelievably deep relationship with someone named Jonathan. You know who Jonathan happens to be? Anybody? Little Bible trivia? Saul's son incredibly deep relationship with the king who hates him and every day wants him dead a little bit more and more. David also, let me complicate things a little bit further, marries Michal. Do you know who she is? Saul's daughter. Sounds like a soap opera, right? At this point, this is now, Saul is now David's father-in-law and the dad of his absolute best friend in the world. And that's where we jump into our text. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. This is the, this is the level that it's gotten. This is Saul's insanity. Saul's son delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. In other words, David isn't competition for you, David's honoring you, is what Jonathan is saying to his dad for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. So he wins. Jonathan wins this argument. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So what does Jonathan do? He advocates for David in this moment. He goes to his his dad and says, this isn't okay. What you're telling all of your people, like I need to set the record straight. David is pure in his desire for your kingdom and for you as a king. And he wins him over. But the problem is, and I'm going to scan through this scripture because the story is so long, but he wins him over in this moment. However, it doesn't stay that way. Saul gets so mad and jealous of David that he eventually even tries to throw a spear at David while David's trying to help him and tries to pin him to the wall. And David flees and escapes. He goes goes first to the place with Michal where he lives, and she... It's, it's a long story. But she basically puts a dummy in his bed so that he can escape so that the king's men won't know that he's not there. So his wife does the exact same thing. She intercedes for him, puts her own life at risk. And David flees and he's running from Saul here and there. And he's still staying connected to Jonathan during this time. And so they hatch a plan together because they, like, they're still trying to figure out what's going on inside Saul's mind. And Jonathan says, I'll go back to my dad again. I'll try to win him over again and see what I can do. And, he's, and he comes up with a plan and says, we're going to meet in this field where I will tell you what I found out about my dad. And then we get into this passage. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan because Jonathan went to him. This is when Jonathan went to him and tried to talk to him again about David. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's a good slam right there. Write that one down, okay? Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? You hear what he's saying? You've chosen David over me. He's looking at his own son, Jonathan, and saying, You're the enemy. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered his father, answered Saul his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Saul picks up his spear now to pin his own son against the wall. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David. So he goes out to the field to tell David exactly what his dad had said. Then, just after this, there's a really tearful goodbye. They're hugging each other, they're crying, because David and Jonathan know they're not going to see each other for a long time, and there's nothing David can do except run in that moment. And so then we close off in 1 Samuel 20:42. Jonathan says to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. This is one of the most famous friendships of all time. It's truly historical. People will talk about David and Jonathan and the relationship that they had together as friends. So what did we learn? What did we learn in this story about friendship? Well, we could talk a lot I wanna grab at a few things and I wanna pull other scripture to it so I can understand what God wants of us, like how we imitate some of the things that we see in David and Jonathan. And the first thing would be this. Jonathan stands in the gap. Good friends stand in the gap. That's what they do. I would use two words. One would be he advocates for him and the other would be that he intercedes for him. What's the difference between them? You advocate for somebody, that's when you use your words. I'm going to speak on their behalf. So someone comes to me and they're like, man, I hate Zach. He's the worst. And I'm like, you know what? Let me, t- I will, I can advocate for Zach. I will stand up for him in this moment. I will tell you who he is. I will speak on his behalf. That's me advocating for him. All right. Interceding is a little bit different. That's one step further where somebody's like, I, you know what? I'm going after Zach. And, I, and that's where I stand up. And I'm like, then you have to come through me. I, I will intercede on his behalf. I will stand on his behalf. This is me standing between you and him, okay? You have seen in this story, Jonathan do both of those things. He both intercedes for David. So does Michal, by the way, his wife. She does the exact same thing. And she advocates for him. She stands in the gap. She is with him in the pain and the difficulty and the adversity in that. Both his wife and Jonathan are Jonathan risks his own life. You notice in there there was a spear thrown at his head? (laughs) I've advocated for other people. I have interceded for other people. I have yet to have a spear thrown at my head as a result of my intercession on someone else's behalf, but that does happen for Jonathan. What's the second thing? There is no agenda. Jonathan is loving David for the sake of their friendship, period. There is no agenda. He's not getting anything out of this. Do you understand that when I... Uh, show you love when I serve you because of something that you give me then it's transactional then it's actually a pretty selfish act because the only reason I'm loving you is because of the thing that is returned to me in that and that isn't love that's lust you guys when I am doing something because of the return that I get from you that has more to do with lust than love I know that normally we just use lust in the sense of passions but it's a good definition and this isn't transactional for Jonathan. He's doing this, he's, he's loving without an agenda. He's putting his own life at risk. There isn't anything outside of the pure friendship that exists there. He's doing it for love's sake. Listen, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, let me just, let me just hit you with Luke 6, okay? Luke 6, 32. These are words from Jesus himself. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good things to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Don't expect in return. Your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful. He's kind to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful." Do you hear Jesus there? He's like, it's not, it's not work to love people who love you. If they love you, it's super easy to love them. What about loving people a step beyond that? What about loving people for the sake of love? What about loving without an agenda? The third thing that Jonathan does is that he points David to the Lord. This is happening continually. We didn't see it much in our text here, but this is happening continually continually. Uh, throughout the relationship between Jonathan and David. If I jump forward just a couple of chapters to 1 Samuel 23, 15, and 16, David and Jonathan will be reunited for just a little bit. They get to see each other. And it says this, One day near Horesh, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. It's still going on. Saul's still trying to hunt him down, okay? Jonathan went to find David. He's interceding for him again and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. This is the nature of their relationship. It wasn't just information. Hey, my dad's coming to get you. He's encouraging him in his faith in that moment, helping him to go deeper, helping him to strive for that. So as I'm looking at these three things this week, as I'm looking at who Jonathan is, He's a person who stands in the gap. He's a person who loves without agenda. He's a person who's pointing toward God. I mean, all the time I'm asking myself, is this the kind of friend I am? And are these the kinds of friends I've built around me? But the other thing that stood out to me when I looked at this list, you guys, stands in the gap, loves without agenda, points toward God, I was like, man, those are descriptions of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are just the books that tell the story of Jesus' time on earth. So if you read those books and about the life of Christ, you see him doing these three things all the time. All the time. Let me give you just some examples. Isaiah 53 prophesies that Jesus would be pierced for us, on our behalf, crushed for us. That upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. Could anyone stand in the gap for us more than that? I mean, John 15, 12, 13, he's 12 and 13. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. He's calling us his friends and saying he's the one who's willing to do that for us. 1 John 2, 1. John says this, now listen, listen if it was just the first part of the verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, because I do sometimes, so that stings a little bit. And then he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus advocates for us. Jesus, where he intercedes for us. He wears our sin on our behalf to represent us to the Father. He's our advocate. He's the one who speaks for us. Love that. Well, What about loving without an agenda? Romans 5.8, for crying out loud, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you remember what he said as he hung on the cross? As we put him on the cross and he's hanging on the cross, nails in his wrists, nails through his feet, what does he cry out? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Talk about loving without an agenda. There was nothing he was on the receiving end in that moment except pain, and yet he still extended his friendship to us. Man, Jesus is good to us. He points us toward the Father. When he prayed for us in John 17, 26, Jesus said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He constantly was talking about revealing the Father to us. Revealing the Father to us. Think about the way that Jesus did ministry. How did Jesus do ministry? He spent his entire life, on an ex- his entire ministry, the three years he was doing ministry, in an extended camping trip with his disciples, basically saying, this is who the Father is. Let me reveal him to you over and over again through miracles, through teaching, through all these different things. I want to make the kingdom of God plain to you. I want to push you forward in your faith, point you toward the Lord. You guys, this is how Jonathan loved David. This is how Jesus shows love to us, and this is how we show love to each other. These are the three things that we do. Again, it has been convicting for me this past week to look at this list and say, how am I doing, me? How am I personally doing with this? How am I standing in the gap for the people around me? How am I loving without agenda? Not not transactional, not just the people who love me, but the people who are hard to love. How am I doing in loving them? What's coming out of my mouth? Is it more annoyance or is it compassion? Am I pointing other people toward the Lord? I want to be this kind of a person. I want Jesus to help me get there. The cool thing is it's not just about an individual, though. It's also about a group. It's one thing, I mean, it is transforming for me if I begin to let God's love transform me into this. That is transforming. But you guys, here's something really cool. When a group of people start behaving this way, it's unbelievable. It's magnetic. Other people can smell it from a mile away. It's like there's a group of people who are living like this. In Acts 2, one of the most beautiful passages that we have about church, when the church was new and alive and fresh, and the Holy Spirit had broken open and was poured out over everybody. Here's what it says They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Did you hear that? They were together, they had things in common, there was unity. They were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. No one was forcing that. The church wasn't walking out being like, sell your stuff. The government wasn't waltzing out and being like, sell your stuff, bring all the money, dump it in the middle. There was such a spirit of generosity. People were like, God's love is changing me. How can I help? Oh, you need something? I'll help you. Transforming community. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Who would be opposed to this? There aren't too many people in our culture that would be opposed to this. They'd be like, man, they love each other really well. It's hard. It is hard to complain about those people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's, mag- it's magnetic, you guys. It's magnetic. People can see it from a mile away. When a group of people live this out, when they stand in the gap, love without agenda and point toward God, revival comes out of it. This is a really weird transition. But years ago, I read this book about a dude um, named William Queen. He's an ATF agent. That's the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I've never understood why that's all under one bureau, but it is, okay? I don't know why they combined those three things. This is who he is, William Queen. And he wrote this book, I read it probably 20 years ago, called Under and Alone. And it's because as an ATF agent, his people wanted him to infiltrate one of the bloodiest motorcycle gangs in Southern California. There's a group called the Mongols. And and they were in a 17-year war with the Hells Angels. And the Mongols were such a nasty group of murderers that they were committing murders in broad daylight, knowing that no one would testify against them in court. And the ATF wanted to take them down, but you couldn't get into the gang. And so it was William Queen's job to infiltrate, <laughs> to infiltrate this motorcycle gang and try to get on the inside to figure out what they were doing. And his, it's not, I, I, it, you can imagine, it's not a G-rated book. This isn't really a book recommendation, okay, that I'm, I'm doing tonight. Um, I heard him interviewed on like an NPR story and I was just spellbound by it, so I ended up reading the book because his other identity for years was Billy St. John. That's him as a Mongol. That's a picture that was taken for him when he was within the gang. So it was really difficult for him to get in the gang, first of all, Um, but he did. And through a series of really crazy circumstances because a bunch of stuff changed within the gang, very quickly he became the national secretary treasurer of their gang. So he had access to everything they did, every drug they sold, every, Ill- every illegal weapon that they did. He, they, they trusted him, this ATF agent, with every record that they had, which was absolutely insane. And, um, but here's the crazy thing. He had to be one of them. Not, and, and it was very difficult to pretend. So he had to do life with this group of thugs and murderers and he grew to love him. And he's, he was con- he's constantly talking in this book about how torn he is about his two identities. As an ATF agent, he knows that everything that they're doing is despicable. They're doing terrible things, and he's trying to prevent people from getting murdered as an ATF agent. Um, and yet, there's a family. Like, there truly are family. And in the middle of the book, his mom dies. And You can imagine he's being very careful to protect his identity, because if they find out he's an ATF agent, he's done, right? He's dead, but he decides to risk it. He goes home, he goes to his his mom's funeral, he goes back to the office, to his ATF office, and he said, I mean, he'd been gone for a while, but he said, I didn't have one ATF agent that sent me a card. I didn't have one ATF agent who said, hey, I'm sorry about your mom. I'm sorry, man, none of that. I said, I only, the only condolence I got was from my own family. And he said, and then I put on my gear and I became Billy St. John again and I drove back to the Mongols, the bikers. And let me read you just a little excerpt because when he goes back there, he doesn't know what to expect. And all of these nasty, giant, dirty bikers start hugging him one by one, crying with him. Here's what he says. One after another, bikers bear-hugged me, expressing their condolences about my mom, telling me they loved me. I couldn't help myself. I felt overwhelmed by a shameful guilt. I watched the Mongols hugging and high-fiving, laughing and toasting the New Year with beer. They exchanged war stories and put their tattooed arms tightly around one another, put their arms around me, freely and sincerely expressed their love for one another and for me. It was sincere. I knew that they honestly loved Billy St. John and at that moment, I desperately wanted to be Billy St. John. And yet every time I started to believe the Mongols were truly my friends, every time I'd dream about riding away with them, they'd do something that would snap me back to reality. Their truly criminal, often murderous nature would hit me in the face like a freezing wind and I'd tell myself, okay, now I remember. I was so blown away by this because when they interviewed him, he was talking about this moment where he was legitimately thinking about cashing in his ATF name and becoming Billy St. John and riding away with the Mongols forever. It's like, whoa! Crazy! But that is the power of community. It's the power of community when we love people well, when we love without agenda. The Mongols weren't doing that, you guys. That's not what they were doing. They were not the example of pure and true friendship. What I want you to understand in that is the power of community, that even in a distorted, twisted, nasty space, that's magnetic, because the one thing that they really were doing was caring about each other. What would it be like if we were the whole package, where it wasn't just loving each other like family, It was that, but more than that. Loving without an agenda. Standing in the gap for each other. Wouldn't that be beautiful? A beautiful picture of community that we could have with each other. Remember the three types of groomsmen I talked about in the beginning? Positive, negative, and clueless, oblivious. (laughs) Those three categories. Um, I, I think that tends to fall into all of our friend groups. What kind of a friend are you? Are you just like wandering through life right now and you're like, I don't know what kind of a friend I am. Man, I wake up and try to get my syllabus done. That's like, I'm just trying to get through life right now. I don't even know. Okay, be aware of that at least, that that's who you are. Are you a negative force? where you're walking around making foolish decisions and trying to grab anywhere, any, anyone else that you can to walk with you? There are no shortage of spaces on this campus where there are fools doing foolish things who would love your company in that, all right? Been around a while, there's no shortage of it. Or are you the type of person who wants to stand in the gap, to intercede and to advocate, who wants to love somebody without an agenda, no transactional stuff, I'll love you if, but, I'll just love you because of who you are, because that's the love that God has put in, in, in my heart. I'll put these back up on the screen for you so you can see them. Are you gonna be somebody who points other people to God, or are you just wanting other people to be pointed towards yourself? Is this the kind of friend that you are? I know it's so easy to look at this list. The first thing that you wanna do is be like, wait a minute, are those my friends? Are my friends acting like that? There's a place for that question. But ask it about yourself first. Is this the kind of friend I am being to the people around me? That you have to start there. The second question is, am I gathering these kinds of people? Am I pulling these kinds of people close to me? I want to be this kind of person. And I want to surround myself with these kinds of people. I want to be Jonathan to your David. I want that. And I think you want it too. And you need it. This is my push for you to find it. If you're like, hey Ben, that sounds great, but I don't know how. I will tell you this, it ain't easy. You gotta put yourself out there. You will have to make yourself vulnerable and you're gonna have to connect with other people. And that's why small groups matter. That's why showing up tonight matters. That's why some of these trips that we talked about earlier matter. We've created the spaces, guys, they're they're there. And I can't guarantee you that those kinds of friendships will come out of you showing up once. But I promise if you pray and lean in and become this kind of person, those other people will find you too. So I got some homework for you. 18 verses from Proverbs. What it means to be a good Proverbs friend. I would love for you to pull out your phone and just grab this. Not for tonight, but for sometime later in the week. So just grab this, download it. And then I want this to be in your brain sometimes later in the week. Proverbs has a whole lot to say about whether we are acting like friends or whether we're acting like fools. And I don't know where you're at tonight, but I don't want to be a fool. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would do a work in our community of faith. I pray that you'd take us deeper as your sons and daughters on what it means to love each other well. And thank you, Jesus, that you're the ultimate example of that, that you showed us all of these things, that you loved us like that. Thank you that you called us friends, not just servants. You called us your friends. You love us intimately. You called us your bride. Thank you for modeling these things for us, Jesus. Thank you for advocating for us, for interceding for us, for loving us. Even when we were your enemies, we set ourselves against you. Thank you for loving us in that moment, Jesus. And Thank you for pointing us toward the Father. Help us do that with each other, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.